Welcome to International History Now, a podcast series hosted by Yorgos Yanakopoulos and Dina Gusenova. We explore topical issues in international affairs from a historical and comparative perspective. In 2008, Russian scientists determined that Polotsk in Belarus is Europe's true geographical center. But it is, of course, the political events of the past two months which have slowly moved Belarus back to international attention. What should we call these ongoing events, which began with yet another rigged election held on the 9th of August 2020, which confirmed supposedly overwhelming support for President Lukashenko? A revolution, perhaps a kind of orange revolution, like the the situation in Ukraine? Certainly, it is a mass popular uprising against the current regime, headed now for 26 years by Alexander Lukashenko. And it is one which has been met with shocking brutality, from the police and security forces. We listened to the Belarusian cover of an originally Catalan song from the 1960s called Lestaka. In the original context, the song was recorded in resistance to the Franco dictatorship, and later it became a, a kind of Solidarność tune um, in, in Poland in the 1980s, um, and so now it's been um, adopted by the Belarusian protest movement, performed by Sergei Tikhanovsky and replayed by the crowds in the Minsk rally in August 2020. Today we're joined by Alexander Edkind. Alexander is professor of history at the European University Institute in Florence, and he has moved to the UI after many years of teaching as professor at the University of Cambridge. He is the author, among other things, of Internal Colonization, Russia's Imperial Experience from Polity University Press 2011. And we're also joined by Maria Markso. Maria is a senior lecturer in international security at the Brussels School of International Studies at the University of Kent. She has written widely on Polish and Baltic politics of becoming European, on liminality, memory wars, and memory laws in Eastern Europe. So I would like to start by by asking Alexander to think about the absence, really, or the silence around Belarus in in sort of international, well, cultural circles. I mean, what is your take on the perception of Belarus in Eastern European and Russian consciousness? Well, thank you, Dina, for this very topical, but also hugely broad questions. We could discuss for, you know, for hours, you know, whether the Belarusian Soviet Socialist Republic was a proper name for this land uh, during the Soviet period, or it, it would be better just to say it was a Belarusian. It was a, it was a colony rather than a you know, Socialist Republic. I, I, of course, would opt for the, for the latter. But after 91, you know, it was internationally... It was and it is an internationally recognized sovereign state. It's not a colony, it's not a protectorate, it's not nothing like that. There is no mandate on it that belongs to Russia or anybody else. It's an independent country. So if it will be annexated or whatever, occupied or colonized, it will be a process that will happen with an independent country. Internal colonization is this concept which you have applied widely to Eastern Europe and through which you have really analyzed the expansion of the Russian Empire. Could you explain this concept a little and also say how uh, an understanding of the region through this concept uh, of internal colonization, among others, uh, but also through your work on memory, 
how it can help understand a borderland region, uh, such as um, the region that then became Belarus. Scholars of colonization uh, mostly talk about external colonization, say from uh, from the harbors of uh, England to India uh, or Northern America or Africa or Australia and you name it. But uh, the Russian Empire, like some other terrestrial empires, say Ottoman Empire or Austrian, Austria-Hungarian empires. So terrestrial empires have their specificity. The the Russian Empire was expanding hugely at some point. You know, it was growing faster than any other empire in world history, and also it, it became the the largest one, Belarus or Kresy, as it was called um, in the classical, you know, political historical tradition. This kind of borderlands between Poland. Russia, probably also the Ottomans on the south and uh, the Baltic peoples on the north. So that was an indefinite land. It didn't even get its own name, so it was called Kresy. It also didn't have natural resources to talk about. There was no gold, no silver, no silk, no cotton, no whatever, uh, no elephants, nothing like that. It had uh, mainly for the Russian Empire. It had um, uh, the function of being a strategic corridor to, you know, to go to the to Central and possibly Western Europe if needed, but also to build fortifications and uh, whatever trenches and marshals fortresses uh, for defending from the possible attack from the West. So it, it had, and actually, it still has this particular significance, and uh, possibly only this one, precisely because it didn't have uh, natural resources to talk about. So since Belarus, according to the, uh, the actual you know, political treaties and, um, and uh, the international law, is an independent country, there is no way to talk about it as internal colony. The, uh, if there will be any kind of annexation, occupation, hybrid war, or whatever, whatever happens, whatever will happen in Belarus, whatever, whatever actually is going on uh, right now, I could imagine talking about external colonization of Belarus. Thank you, Alexander. I, I'd like to bring in uh, Maria in our discussion and uh, touch on a relevant theme, as it were, different kinds of ways to see places like Belarus. Maria, you have spoken about the tendency among Eastern European states to develop what some other scholar has referred to as nesting orientalisms, a tendency to orientalize various Eastern European others. And that tendency, you argue, uh, comes from a desire for, and this is a term you've coined, mnemonic security. Uh, mnemonic security basically refers to um, the security of the self through memory. And uh, specifically, the tendency which uh, we already uh, explored in the framework of this joint project uh, already quite a few years ago with, uh, with Alexander, Memory at War, the tendency of the regional states in Central and Eastern Europe to um, securitize their um, social collective memories um, by means of law. Uh, basically by adopting various uh, legal mechanisms in order to protect a particular version of their remembered past 
and uh, and hence also a particular version of their national self. Now, when I say your national self, of course, I mean, this is already where the, the devil of the details uh, comes in, because uh, obviously, regardless of what all these uh, legalizers and mnemonic securitizers want us to believe and see, uh, memory always is much more varied and plural and, and complex and cannot really be reduced to a single uh, version, nor is it also politically productive to, to reduce it to a single version in terms of it doesn't uh, achieve the purpose this kind of mnemonic security seeking is after. It does not actually make anyone uh, secure. It rather raises the stakes of these memory conflicts, uh, you know, contestations with neighbors who have different memories, different uh, understandings of the past and so on and so forth. Culturally, very recently, until um, the writer, uh, kind of documentary fiction writer, Svetlana Alexievich has won the Nobel Prize, Belarus was, again, a kind of absent, forgotten part of, of Europe. And in fact, in a recent open letter to the Russian intelligentsia, um, Svetlana Alexievich accused her Russian colleagues of silence about the current events. And some intellectuals have then sent statements of support in a kind of sheepish way, whereas others like the poet and activist Lev Rubinstein, claimed that there is no such thing as uh, Russian intelligentsia anymore. But I think with Belarus, I mean, again, you know, as, as Dina in, uh, in your introduction, you very rightly pointed out, uh, there is this curious paradox, right? Geographically, the center, well, not just sort of in this part uh, of the world in, in Europe, but also uh, when we look at uh, the 20th century history, uh, in very significant ways. I mean, Timothy Snyder calls it, you know, at the heart of the Molotov Ribbentrop Europe, so to speak, at the heart of the bloodlands, where two two um, uh, regimes uh, clashed and also interacted, and that in a way was the terrain of interaction um, in the context of the Second World War, most uh, significantly. And regardless of this very central physical position, perhaps. It has been, as also Alexandra pointed out, in terms of its geopolitics and its, its sort of symbolic weight in international relations, something of an absence or, or void or, or a sort of buffer zone or a corridor rather than really a subject of its own. So the curious thing in this process that we now observe uh, in Belarus, I think, is, is precisely how, if I may borrow from a feminist uh, international relations scholars, Scholar Cynthia Enlow, who, who called uh, uh, certain actors in, in world politics margin silences and bottom rungs. So how now this, this sort of silent actor in, uh, in, uh, in world politics uh, is in some sort of a process of emancipation? Because what we see is also the emergence of, um, of the Belarusian people as people. Because any kind of um, uh, the, the sort of public coming out as we have been witnessing in the recent uh, weeks, is also, in a way, the affirmation of this Fiazintas Folk classic uh, that we saw also uh, in the context of, of, uh, of Germany, uh, GDR. Maria, just wanted to follow up a bit. From your experience of the Baltic case, do you think that Belarus will therefore need to work on its kind of national identity story to free itself from from this sort of corridor status? Or are there other options? Uh, what could it learn, in a way, from the case studies, if you like, of, um, of the Baltic states that you've, you've studied? I mean, both culturally and politically. I know you've also worked at the, the office of the 
president of Estonia, for example. So you've you've done both the theoretical work and you've been involved in in policy making. Is is there something that you would say? can be transferred from that experience? That's, of course, uh, you know, one of these questions that, um, that uh, cuts very deep into some of the core debates in, uh, in uh, sociology and social theory about you know, to, to what degree uh, things such as national identity are uh, somehow organic and, and uh, you know, emerge from within and very... And I think in that sense, you know, there are elements that we can, of course, compare. We always can compare. This is also what uh, international relations uh, as a subject is, is in the business uh, about. Uh, but obviously, there are limitations. And I guess, you know, sort of drawing direct lessons would not quite be warranted here. I mean, you know, let's start with the context. Obviously, uh, the main similarities between the Baltic states and, and Belarus would be that, well, they were all... Uh, in the context of the history of the Soviet Union, the westernmost uh, Soviet republics. But, you know, as also uh, Sasha rightly pointed out, I mean, Belarus was a special kind uh, of, uh, of uh, republic within the Soviet Union, also part of the Soviet Union for significantly longer than the Baltic states. And this is where the key uh, difference uh, basically starts from. I mean, this is the difference of the interwar independence, which uh, in the case of the Baltic states basically lasted uh, roughly 20 years, whereas uh, it was uh, something like three or four years in case of, of Belarus. And, uh, and hence, you know, as in mnemonic security, as in ontological security or security of the self, the idea of being able to go back to some kind of uh, uh, vision of a self that enables to, to um, uh, establish this continuity with the kind of self you want to be. This was and has always been there to a greater degree for the Baltic states than it uh, perhaps has ever been in the post-Cold War uh, context for Belarus. So, for instance, if we take the collapse, uh, the moment, the, uh, the very liminal moment of, of the collapse of the Soviet Union, I mean, you could say, or you know, the unraveling process. Let's let's say rather than than the collapse, uh, because it obviously you know took years. You could say that uh, in the beginning, uh, or say in the 1988, 1989, there there was uh, quite some more commonalities. Were more commonalities between the Baltics and and Belarus. Even this very uh, famous event that we know from. Uh, from the sort of popular protests, uh, popular politics uh, of the Baltic states of the time, the 1989 uh, uh, human chain, uh, the Baltic way, uh, this was also originally supposed to include Belarus. And, uh, and for, you know, logistical reasons, it, uh, it didn't work out. So in a way, you know, in terms of symbolic politics, yes, we now also see almost as if uh, references back to this historic uh, historical event uh, that was this human chain <clears throat> to support um, the uh, the uh, public protests in Belarus now, which which uh, uh, physically happens uh, sort of all the way to Lithuania uh, from Belarus, uh, but also of course you know in in spots uh, around the world, including London, for instance. Uh, the already uh, mentioned Svetlana Alexievich herself has written so 
engagingly about whether or not we have seen actually the last chapter of the Soviet man, so to speak, in the in the region. So, and I guess Belarusian problem in that sense uh, has been, if I put it very sort of in pragmatic uh, political terms, the two minor difference, right? The two minor difference from uh, Russia in terms of, you know, the the national identity and what we associate with it. And also, of course, geopolitically, exactly the, the kind of a position where the uh, uh, Western uh, interest uh, remains much more guarded, not least for the fact that, uh, that, say, compared to Ukraine, where, of course, the EU also got a little bit burnt and, and is all the more guarded now, uh, compared to Ukraine, uh, Belarus in hard uh, security terms, just matters so much less. Thanks, Maria. Alexander Etkin, if we locate ourselves in today's Russia and gaze towards Belarus, what do we really see? Right now we will see this um, um, disgusting violence that is highly, highly commented on in uh, Russian press and I think even propagated somehow by I mean, uh, I, 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 would, I wouldn't like these horrible scenes of torture and rape, oppression to be silenced at all. I don't. I wouldn't like it to happen in in, in the Russian uh, media space. But also, I think that the just transmission of these scenes uh, they have their own political function. Because, you know, the Russian media is, uh, you know, at, at this point, you know, 30 years after the collapse of the Soviet Union, uh, the Russian media has uh, have uh, lots of experience in manipulating and actually shaping um, public opinion. So um, I, I think that this um, incre- shocking uh, violence... Uh, which really uh, people didn't expect. So it's somehow this um, scenes of ma- of mass torture. They uh, remain below the radar of international law, and uh, I think that's one of the reasons why the international organizations are so. I mean, there are many other reasons as well. Are so hesitant in the you know for formulating some sound policies towards uh, Belarus. But basically, that's, uh, that's, uh, that's the way of scaring people. That's the way of disciplining the population, uh, particularly that population, that part of the population which is not economically dependent on the regime. Because Belarus is very kind of clearly divided into probably two or three economic parts. One part is uh, basically farmers who... Uh, who continue to live like you know in a kind of way of subsistence farming and take very little part in the international trade or even maybe internal trade yes there are uh, you know huge industrial sites very very much soviet style Uh, they are just replicas of the previous socialist uh, enterprises and they are either owned by the state or owned privately but managed by by the state and they are relatively productive, actually, uh, meaning that these uh, enterprises, they can actually sell their tractors or whatever they build or, or weaponry, either to the west or to the east, meaning either to Central and Western Europe or to, the, uh, to, to, or to Russia. 
And uh, there is a third sector which is uh, uh, pretty large, actually. It's um, this um, IT, information technology people, um, gaming industry, whatever, uh, outsources of um, Western or maybe Chinese companies. And uh, big, Ukraine, big Belarusian, Belarusian cities uh, you know, have, a bit, have a serious population of uh, this IT uh, people, but also traders of different kinds. So it's difficult to punish them economically. It's possible, for instance, the current uh, closing of the borders, the decree that Lukashenko, I think, issued yesterday. Yesterday would would stop lots of these uh, trading activities, but of course it will not stop um, information transfer uh, going on mainly online. So, because <clears throat> precisely because these people need, sh- sh- from the po- position of power, these people should be disciplined by non-economic non-economic means. This um, violence is has been implemented onto them in the capital of Belarus, also in some other industrial centers. The addressees, the subjects of this um, exposure, uh, is definitely the locals. All these, you know, citizens of uh, Minsk and other in, uh, pretty enlightened, pretty civilized, relatively speaking, well-to-do parts of Belarus. But also it works uh, equally well for, say, Russians, whose, you know, social structure or economic structure of the contemporary Russia is not much different from what I have described, I think. But actually, can I just interrupt you there? Because I, I'm wondering, from what you described, my feeling is that, uh, my impression rather, is that the uh, nature of protests or kind of resistance to the, the, the sort of Soviet-style regime or attempts to impose a Soviet-style regime or preserve the 80s or whatever, um, is quite different, it seems to me, in, in Belarus and in Russia. In Russia, there's a great source of a kind of cultural foundation for resistance and a comparatively weaker form of industrial action, for example, as a, as a form of resistance. Whereas in Belarus, I, th- I thought one of the surprising things was actually the scale of industrial action and uh, kind of local um, grassroots, uh, in, a, in a way, movements, organizations that, that, are, that, that seem to be driving uh, the process, but also causing such fear in the, in, in the, in the regime, it, seem, it seems to me. So what I'm wondering about is to what extent this kind of mediated violence and the, uh, this kind of shock and awe strategy is actually achieving different goals in targeting Belarusians indirectly and um, and Russians, but um, I was also I was wondering if I could link back a little bit more to um, both your earlier work on on memory there, memory and and also memory of violence, wartime violence, um, and particularly I'm wondering to what extent looking back at your project Memory at War, and maybe you could say a little bit more about it. I mean about the, the shared memory of extraordinary violence in in the region. I mean Belarus itself lost I think thirty percent of its population, over two two million people. Um, in the Second World War, and I think eighty percent of its uh, towns and, and villages, um, I mean, like like other parts of the region, but extraordinary destruction. And so that the region has a historical, long term memory of extraordinary violence and, and destruction. And I'm just wondering to what extent your previous work on memory um, as a kind of cultural project, uh, whether you view this now as as requiring a kind of follow-up, because I know your your recent work is on natural history, global resources, 
um, and um, and a kind of more materialist, uh, perhaps, angle on um, on these questions. Yeah, indeed, I'm sure I, I've been shifting into this materialist uh, uh, perspective, as, as as you as you said. So I'm actually would you rather comment on your comment? On, on industrial action rather than on memory wars, but I, w- I will, I will, uh, I will return to that as well. Uh, you, you said that you are surprised by uh, the scale of industrial action uh, and peaceful protest. Um, well, you, you, this is really about the contemporary Belarus. It is still an indus- industrial country, while Russia has been effectively de-industrialized. You know, it is it is Belarus which is exporting its uh, tractors to Russia. It's not Russia which is exporting tractors to to Belarus. And of course, why Russia could afford the industrialization? Because Russia has natural resources such as oil and gas, which Belarus doesn't have. So basically, Russia has been subsidizing uh, Belarusian industry and and uh, you know and also the political system to some extent, probably to the population as well. Uh, by the by, by a fraction of its oil and gas profits. There were also stories of transit. You know, the transit of uh, oil and gas is much more important story for Ukraine than for Belarus. But in some ways that we know about, but also probably in, my, in many ways that we still do not know, the energy transit was also subsidizing. Uh, the Lukashenko regime. So industrial action, you know, is, is possible only where where there is industry, where there are serious enterprises. Oil-centered or uh, naturally source-bounded countries, they, they uh, eliminate industrial action. Timothy Mitchell is the best source for for reading about that. Going back to memory wars, uh, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm very happy and very proud that uh, Maria and uh, several other colleagues, such as Ellen Rutten now at the University of Amsterdam and, uh, and uh, five uh, European universities were involved in this uh, project, Memory at War, Cultural Dynamics in, Russia, in Poland, Russia and Ukraine. We started that project in 2010 and uh, ended in 2013. We started studying the uh, cultural and, and, and memory conflicts between Russia, Ukraine, and Poland several years before these conflicts uh, materialized in the actual you know, war, occupation, death, and suffering of millions of people. So um, I think that's why our, our you know, proceedings of our project have been read and cited so much after that. Um, of course, Belarus is, you know, a, a blood, a blood land. Timothy Snyder's great book on bloodlands. Um, it basically centers on Ukraine and Belarus as the uh, uh, biggest example of this, you know, multiple uh, occupations by the German troops, by the Soviet troops, back and forth. And uh, you know, the, the World War II was the global war. But nobody suffered as much as, say, Belarus and Ukraine, uh, uh, relatively speaking. But Belarus has an, another, you know, very, very, very particular specificity. It's also a, 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 a land of the Jewish blood. So, um, of course, the Holocaust, in different forms that Snyder and many others have, have been written about, took 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 place in various countries of Central Eastern Europe, including Western Russia. 
but uh, Belarus was really, you know, uh, uh, the most populous, the most uh, the, the, the Jewish population of the pale uh, before 1917 uh, in Belarus was uh, very, very big. And of course, the Jewish, the Belarusian Jews or Jews of the Kresy played uh, indispensable roles in uh, local economy, uh, trade, uh, engineering, medicine, and culture, and education. And I think that uh, when we are trying to understand what is special about Belarus now, or what was also special about this post-war Belarus, I think we, we need to imagine this figure of absence, the absent Jew, which has this absent figure has a tremendous impact on the Belarusian affairs. Silence, memory, memory wars, silence particularly about the memory of the Second World War. This topic about of the absent subject of memory brings me to uh, reflect on the fortunes really of this large research project that um, Alexander Edkind had started, uh, which involved, I think, multiple institutions and which you, Maria, have also been part of. So I'm just wondering whether we could take a step back to this, to the memory of this project. And uh, if I could ask you to reflect a little bit on the sorts of things that have been achieved and the kind of thinking that has been going on, really inspired by this Memory at War project. So I was exceptionally lucky and, and remain grateful to Alexander, you know, bringing me on board of this uh, really fascinating and interdisciplinary venture that we had. And, um, and it, uh, it has been also sort of eye-opening and is a gift that keeps giving indeed. I mean, not only was there this foresight, uh, I think, uh, you know, on behalf of, of, uh, of Alexander as the original generator behind the idea because what we've seen is really the um, continuation of these themes that we uh, sort of you know pointed at and and started probing and and uh, you know we've seen this motive uh, as uh, having really resurfaced in the russian uh, memory politics as of recently um, there was this uh, resolution european parliament resolution a year ago where basically this indication again was was made and condemnation was made about uh, about the Soviet uh, Union's role in the outbreak of the Second World War, to which Russia has very uh, sensitively uh, agreed. Putin has uh, confessed its personal sense of being hurt by this, and now we have this reference to the protection, the defense of historic truth, uh, as uh, as written into the constitutional changed constitutional project. So, so uh, it's, it's, it's curious indeed that, uh, that in a way the afterlife of the project and of the themes that, uh, that we covered in the project has been so, uh, so varied and interesting and not, of course, only limited to Russia, but also to Poland and Ukraine themselves. It's hard for any scholar to be you know, a fortune teller, but, but the question here would be, if there is a moment of opening today in Belarus, how can we see a new mnemonic regime shaping? Or is there any need for a new mnemonic regime in Belarus? Well, see, I'm first of all, I'm not uh, in that sense that 
at home with the uh, mnemonic debates in Belarus uh, itself. I mean, I suspect my impression has been that, again, compared to the rest of, of the region or the more contested places such as Poland, Ukraine and the Baltic states, Belarus has more been, uh, you know, also due to the regime, um, pursuing this line of, uh, you know, let's let's not uh, stir up the old stuff and let's not uh, awaken the dead and, and let's just uh, sort of carry on with our lives because it's too horrible. And uh, and this is also, of course, uh, I guess, you know, what uh, if we go back to what Alexander said, you know, if the violence has been so immense, can you actually stay silent about it? And what is what is what is the way to sort of start uh, trying to um, swim out of uh, this? This also, in a way, silenced or or suppressed memory. Um, and I think in that sense, you know, there eventually I would foresee uh, some basic need for uh, the opening up also in terms of uh, the mnemonic regime, yes, by the people and for the sake of the people. I mean, it's some, something that uh, scholars such as uh, Viet Thanh Nguyen, uh, the Vietnamese literature scholar, uh, have written as ethical memory as, and as a call for ethical memory. I mean, as, as something where, where you, you know, basically uh, also are able to look into the abyss rather than rather than for the sake of the um, convenience, for the sake of, uh, I don't know, contemporary sanity and practicalities, uh, just to uh, ignore uh, what happened. But I think the, the, the problem always will be uh, for Belarus, the, the degree, the, the sort of the boldness of this, what we could call, you know, also mnemonical emancipation. Uh, Ukraine, if we compare, obviously, as a country, as a nation, has been much more sort of divided uh, in the sense of also the easy binaries of, of IR, such as sort of, you know, more more uh, of the Western, more of the Eastern experience, whereas uh, this sort of uh, independent storyline that is very different from the various Soviet myths that uh, also Russia has been uh, peddling during the Putin regime is not really uh, very powerful or strong in in case of Belarus. And still, and yet, I'd say curiously, against this backdrop, Belarus has given the world Svetlana Alexievich, who has produced perhaps one of the richest uh, fabrics of of, uh, what it was to be um, and live during the Soviet times, uh, you know, through various uh, sort of contrapuntal history in a way, uh, through various uh, perspectives, uh, personal viewpoints. And, you know, in that sense, I think this kind of a mnemonic culture, the opening for this is already there. The question is how uh, broadly it will be uh, shared and and uh, accepted and, and sort of emotionally taken up by by the society, by the people themselves. Yeah, I, I should say that I'm not a big fan of the idea of mnemonic regime. You know, my memory is a pr- private matter. And uh, uh, exactly as Maria said, Svetlana Alexievich did more to, for the Russian memory than you know, hundreds of historians or um, politicians who 
who have been talking about, you know, things like memory and regime in Belarus. Russia has Yuri Dmitriev, for instance, who is now, you know, under the ongoing trial, which was fabricated against him. There are enthusiasts of memory, I believe, I believe in that. People like Dmitriev or Alexievich, there, there are audiences that are hospitable, interested, also enthusiastic to uh, memory products. Uh, because these memory products, they are necessarily, they take cultural forms. What else can they do? They, they, these are books or operas or monuments or museums, etc. Our historical monographs. And the local society, you know, could be either interested in reading these books, buying them, you know, watching these operas, etc. Looking at the small monuments with understanding, attending the museums. And uh, the state uh, definitely could do something uh, for or against these processes, but not very much. We wish you to look at the, those individuals and in particular circumstances, particularly oppressive circumstances, they are heroic individuals and they actually acquire their political energy from their memory work. And this um, is uh, equally fair about, say, Alexievich and Dmitriev. Uh, thank you, Alexander and, and Maria. Uh, there is, of course, a framework in which kind of individuals and, well, perhaps states, anyway, societies more broadly meet in some way, um, halfway perhaps, and that's education, um, cultural institutions. And I'm, I was just wondering if you have ideas on future work um, in this area that might link these uh, themes of uh, cultural memory in Eastern Europe with uh, the economic dependencies in which different regions find themselves, and also the political dependencies. I, I, I would like to see more comparative work, that's for sure, and more work that would be done by uh, research teams, you know, people like. And actually, uh, you know, comparing public spheres, comparing comparing museums and memorials and just monitoring the events and um, connecting the particular uh, phenomena of cultural memory with broader political context. Basically, this is what we did in our Memory at War project. But of course, no nowadays, because the, the whole area has, practically speaking, it has expanded hugely, al almost exponentially. Uh, and much more work should be and could be done. I, sh I, I want also to say that, you know, this new technical media, uh, those exactly means that we're using right now at this moment. They give an excellent opportunity for creating a productive work in this um, area without actually leaving the native land, you know, without disconnecting oneself from the actual experience, political or cultural, uh, of, your, of one's own city. So uh, this work nowadays could be organized, you know, team, team work could be organized online which is something that we didn't even dream about uh, in 2010 when we organized Memory at War project as a kind of traditional lab. Yes, and I could add uh, on my part to what Alexandra already said that, uh, of course, uh, keeping it as transdisciplinary uh, would only benefit uh, the uh, insights and what, what we study, the object of study, because... 
because obviously, again, I'm speaking from the perspective of my own discipline, which historically has been uh, very uh, parochial, I'd say, vis-a-vis um, uh, the value and, and, and the kinds of uh, knowledge, insights, area studies produce. Maria Marxo, Alexander Edkin, thank you very much for this discussion. Я не должно, так пусть они рухнут, рухнут, рухнут.